Uh, Last week, uh, we began studying Colossians chapter 3, which is the practical part of the book of Colossians. Paul spends the first couple of chapters uh, instructing and uh, giving some uh, some guidelines, helping us to learn how to defend our faith against outside influence. Then in chapter 3, he says, now that we have all this knowledge, here's how we start to apply that in different areas of our lives. And so last week we talked about uh, the new man, how we put on our new life. And once we put on our new life, we are now representatives of Christ. It says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, it says, And have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. And so Paul is saying, look, when we put on the new self, that moment of salvation, that one-time act, we are to take off of our old self and put on our new life in Christ. We are now representing Christ in all that we do, and we are constantly being renewed from that point, that idea of we are being made holy, we are being made like Christ. And so today he takes it the next step further. He says, as a, as a, as a new man in Christ, uh, we are to put away our sin, we are to live with these characteristics and these virtues as Christ would, and then today he's going to say, this is how you apply these things in your marriage, in your homes, and in the workplace. And so he goes in depth and says, now we are representative of Christ as husband, as wives, as children, as parents, as a boss, as an employee, we all represent Christ in all areas of our lives. And he starts to lay that out very specifically for us here today. This is like five teachings in one. So we're going to go through this very quickly, um, but there's a lot in here. And so it's going to be very high level. really want to get in depth with some of it. We just don't have time. Um, but we, I'll be pointing you some other places as we go through this. Uh, so hang in with me. Uh, there today. So practical application as it pertains to marriage. I know that there's some in here that say, well, I'm not married. Um, at some point, most likely you will want to be or you will be married. Um, some of you may have said, um, that's not for me, but there are applications for all of us to pull out of this today, I promise. So uh, to hang in there. Um, but I encourage you guys just to listen to what it is God is, uh, is directing us to and what Paul is saying in this passage today. So you ready? All right, fantastic. Let's take a look at our outline beginning in Genesis chapter 2. This is where God institutes marriage. The very beginning of time, it says that God established marriage between God or between man and woman. So he brings us two together, and it says this in Genesis chapter 2. It says, So the Lord, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into the uh, the woman the rib which was taken out of man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and underline this last line. It says, and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God says, look, man cannot do life alone. He needs help. And so he raises up woman. He creates woman to come alongside of man. And this is where God institutes marriage. And so marriage between man and, marriage and woman is ordained right here at the very beginning of time by God. And he says, this is what it's supposed to look like. And Paul's going to break that down for us today. But one of the things that we quickly notice, if you've been married or if you've been around those who are, is that marriage with marriage tends to come conflict. So God institutes marriage and said, this is the way it's going to be, but he never said it's going to be easy. You see, we always butt heads with our spouses, right? Sometimes it's big things. There are major problems that we face in life, absolutely. The, the loss of a loved one or financial burden that comes on, there, there are real-life application, real-life problems that come up in marriage. But I find a lot of the arguments that we tend to have are, are petty things. You know, for example, uh, when I got married, I've been married for almost nine years. When we got married, one of the first things I found out is that when I go into my bathroom, our counter space is no longer my counter space. 
Got you with me on this one, guys? So you walk in there. Yeah, thank you. You walk in, and, and there's like the, the makeup section and the hair dryer and, the, and, the, and the, the, I don't know what this other thing does. And, you know, there's all this stuff. And so, it, yeah, there you go. Closet, right? And so it's no longer your space. It's sh- shared space, right? And so we, you go in there. So I, I was like, okay. So we had some discussions about the, that orderly neatness. And so I went out and bought a, a basket, and put it on the counter. I was like, maybe the stuff will make its way to the basket if I put it there. So I come in the next day, and the stuff's neatly placed around the basket <laughs> on, on the counter. And I'm like, so not a fight we're going to win, guys. I promise you, not a fight uh, we're going to win there. <clears throat> and so we go through things, and so many of these things are petty. The stealing of the covers at night, you know, the back and forth that goes on there. But marriage, you know, it's, it's a challenge. God never says it's going to be easy, but, you know, I love my wife, and she loves me at the end of the day, and we can make it through even these small things like that together. So Paul here starts to institute uh, what this marriage is supposed to look like according to Christ. But conflict, like I said, is going to be a part of marriage. It's just a part of marriage. And if you go all the way back to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3, this is what it says on your outline. In verse chapter 3, verse 18, it says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet you will underline the word desire will be for your husband, and underline he will rule over you. So your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. So one of the things you realize in scripture as you read through is that we read it in English. We kind of just read things like your desire will be for your husband. Well, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, of course you'd hopefully desire to be with your husband, but then he will rule over you. You see, the problem is Eve desired her husband from that loving uh, standpoint before the fall of man. So after man falls into sin, it says that you will desire for your husband and he will rule over you. And so we'll look into what the word desire actually means. And so if you go to Genesis 4, 7 on your outline, this is during the story of Cain and Abel. God is talking to Cain. He says, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire, underline that, is for you, but but you must master it. So we glaze over that in English, but when you look at in in the Hebrew word, the Hebrew word for desire there is the word teshuka. And the word desire, as it's used here, literally means control. Control. So he's saying, Cain, sin will desire to control your lives. In the same way, he's saying to women in chapter 3, he says, yet your desire, your teshuka will be for your husband. So he's saying, as a result of sin, the fall of man, he says, women, your desire in life will be to control your husband. Your desire will be to control your husband. And all of a sudden, things start to make sense. So we can see it in our marriage where, where, you know, ladies, where we desire to control our man. But then it goes on from there and it says, and he will rule over you. That word rule is a dictatorial type of rule or reigning over. So what God is saying at the fall of man is that women, your desire will be to control your husband, but men, your desire will be a dictator, to be a dictator to your wife. And so from the very beginning of time, there's been this conflict. We want to control the men. And men want to be dictators to the woman. And so all of a sudden, all of our fighting, it starts to make sense. Because you start to see that in our lives. You start to see where I've been, I've been dictating things to my wife and where she's been trying to control me. And there's this back and forth. And so it is in our sin nature. It is our sinful desire to control one another. But Paul here in Colossians chapter 3 lays out, this is what biblical marriage will look like. When we put on our new life, when we are representative, representatives of Christ, this is how it will be reflected in our lives. And so as we study through this today, there's a couple of things I want to point out. Number one is there'll be a lot of self-checking going on today. As we read through this, you're going to start seeing the areas that I know as a husband I need to work on, as a wife you need to work on, as a child how you need to work, parents 
as an employee. So just start evaluating where you're at. But also your desire is going to be to want to nudge the person sitting next to you. You know, you need to listen to that one. I just encourage you guys to not do that. Like I said, your time will come today. I can promise you that. So that being said, let's jump into Colossians chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, wives, be subject, underline that word, to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Most translations actually say, wives, submit to yourselves, to, submit yourselves to your husbands. So today that word submission comes with a very negative connotation. See, most of us men will say, wives, submit to your husbands. Amen. Let's pack up our stuff, go home, and let my wife dwell on that one this week. Right? That's, that's what you, when you, she needs to listen to that one. But you see, the biblical form of submission is not what we have made it today. It carries a very negative weight with us today. And see, there are some of those that would say the Bible wants to hold women back thousands of years. We've made such great strides, and the Bible just wants to hold them down. But what Paul is actually doing in this passage, believe it or not, is he's elevating the role of the woman in the household. You see, back in the Roman Empire, it says that women were suppressed. They were put in their place. Men ruled over the women. They told them what to do. They bossed them around. But Paul's saying, no, no, women are equal with men in the eyes of God. There is equality there. It's not one is better than the other, but they are equal in the eyes of God. So he's elevating them to equality with man. And so we have to find out what this word submission actually means. So in verse 18, when it says subject or submit yourselves to your husbands, it is the Greek word hupitasso. Hupitasso. And this word literally means to subordinate to, to submit to one's control, to yield to one's admonition or advice. This word is often used in reference to a military ranking system. So in the army, you have generals, you have colonels, you have captains, and so on and so forth. It's the same thing in marriage. God says, look, man is to be the head of the household. Ultimately, the buck stops there. Women are to be submissive to him in that order of rank underneath. Children are underneath their parents and so on and so forth. So there's that military ranking set up in our family. So it is a a yielding to their admonition or advice. Oftentimes we view submission as women, you need to be obedient to your husband no matter what he says. But there's a different word for that. In verse 20, uh, Paul's talking about the parent-child relationship. He says, children, obey your parents. That word obey there is hupikuo, which is to be under, a subordinate to, to be obedient and to obey. So two completely different words. So when Paul says women be submissive to your husband, he's not saying you need to be obedient uh, to whatever they say when they're ruling over you. It's saying, look, you're equal to them, but you're to be a submissive to their leadership. They are put in rank above you. It is more about the rank than it is the person that's there. So there's this ranking system that's put there in marriage by God. And this is interesting for a couple of reasons. You see, this idea of rank is so important to God that it is part of his very being. It's part of the very essence of who God is. For instance, when you see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in Scripture, you always see them in that order, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says this. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so it's the very essence of who God is. He says, you know, we are all equal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, yet there is an order of ranking above one another. We also see that the verb for subject or submit in that verse implies a voluntary, not a forced submission. It's not men forcing you to submit, but it's a voluntary submission to their leadership. It says it's a yielding to their advice, a yielding to their leadership. And again, we see this in the very essence of God. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says he's about to be arrested. He's about to be taken to be crucified. And it says he's praying, and it says this, and he went a little beyond them and fell on his knees and face and prayed, saying, my father... 
If it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Not as I will, but as you will. So it says that Jesus is submitting to the will of the Father. It's not what I want, but God the Father, it's what you want. They were equals. But Jesus says, I'm going to submit to the will of the Father. So there's that military ranking system just as there is in marriage. And it's also important, again, as I said before, because women, you are submitting to that position that Christ has put man as the head of the household than the person. You see, it doesn't suggest that man is better than women. It doesn't suggest that we are smarter than you guys. And in fact, the only places we see the submission in place is in the home and in the church. It doesn't say in the workplace, women can't run companies, women can't be presidents, women can't do these things. It's saying that in the home, women, you're to submit to your husband. You're to submit to your husband. And so, man, this means that we have the responsibility of leading our wives well, of leading our wives well. Remember, and we have to remember as we study through all these today, that Paul's writing to believers when he wrote Colossians. And so he's saying, if you are a believer, okay, the assumption is that you're going to lead your wife well. So wives, you are to submit yourselves to his leadership, his biblical leadership. The responsibility solely falls on you guys to lead the house well. A good general never acts alone. There are advisors speaking into the decisions they make. But at the end of the day, the decision ends with them, just as it does men with you at home. The decision ends with you. Don't act alone. Work together. But at the end of the day, you are the head of the household. Women, your responsibility is to support your husband, to love them, to pray for them, to encourage them, to come alongside them, to help them in any way possible. In Genesis 2.18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him, underline, a helper suitable for him. A helper, not a slave, not somebody to be bossed around, but a helper, somebody that will support the husband. On your outline, I want you to write this. The new wife will support their husband and make him better. The new wife will support their husband and make him better. Wives, it's your role to come alongside your husband, support him, help him lead, pray for your husband, do what you can to make him a better man, a better leader of your household. And ladies, this is why it is so important before you, before you get married, before you walk down that aisle, you've got to ask yourselves your question. Can I submit to this man's leadership? Can I submit to this man's leadership? Can he lead the house in a way that I would expect my husband to lead the house according to scripture, according to the way God would have him lead? Can he do that? You have to make sure before you enter that that you can say, I can submit to his leadership. I can submit to his decisions. You see, Paul finishes the verse. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Ladies, to submit to your husband is literally an act of obedience to God. God says, ladies, you need to do this. It is an act of obedience. It is an act of worship when you submit yourselves to your husband. I know that can be difficult. I am a husband. I know what my wife goes through. But you're to submit yourselves to your husband. A quick side note, there's some of you guys in here today, and we get this question often. You say, I'm not married to a believer. What do I do? Like I said, we have to cover a lot today, so we don't have time to go down all these rabbit trails. But write this down in your notes. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you're in that situation today, hang in there, read that scripture, and it will guide you through what that means. You're, you're, you're um, going to kind of get some clarity there from Peter in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. So moving on from there, Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Husbands, it's your turn. Paul says, husbands, love, underline that, your wives, and do not be embittered, underline that, against them. So this word love, we talked about it last week, is agape love. In the Greek, the word agape means unconditional love. So it's not a love for what you do for me, so you do great things for me, so I'll love you, you give me stuff, so I'll love you. But it is an unconditional love. No matter what happens in my marriage, men, you are to love your wife. No matter what, you are to love your wife. 
See, most of us see love as an emotion, but what this agape love is, it's actually an action of sacrificing ourselves for the sake of another. We are denying ourselves for the sake of our wives. We're putting the care of that person, our wife, above the cares and needs of ourselves. On your outline, I want you to write this down. It says, the new husband will continually deny himself for the sake of his wife. The new husband will continually deny himself for the sake of his wife. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I need. But I'm going to deny myself for the sake of my wife. Paul goes further in Ephesians chapter 5, and he says this. Husbands, love agape, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and underline this, gave himself up for her. Jesus wants to remind you, look, I died for the church. Men, you're supposed to love your wife in the same fashion. I sacrificed my life. Men, love your wife that way. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present himself to the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. That's a pretty lofty expectation for us, guys. It's a pretty lofty expectation to put our wives above ourselves so that she can be seen as perfect, she can be seen as holy, she can be seen as blameless, she can be seen as spotless. Guys, it is our role to make our wives the best version of herself that she can be and to deny ourselves whatever it takes to show, us, show her how much we love her, to put her needs above our own, to cherish her, to protect her, to keep her from harm, buy her flowers. You're welcome, ladies. Show her that you love her. Sacrifice for her. Instead, we tend to get frustrated because of our own selfishness, and it creeps into our lives. As Paul finishes that verse, his husband, love your wives unconditionally, love your wives, and do not be embittered against them. That word embittered means to produce that bitter taste that comes up from our stomach. It says, or to make angry. Even when you feel like you have a good reason to be mad, guys, Paul's saying, guess what? You don't. You are the man. You are to love her no matter what. You do not have a right to be angry. And that's the role of the husband. And that's hard for some of us to digest. You see, I'm constantly reminded uh, by, by some people in my life that I have this need to be right. I talk about this all the time up here. You know, and my, my, my argument is that it's not a need to be right when you are right. You're just reminding people that they're wrong. There's nothing really wrong with that. I mean, it's just the way it is. But this tends to come out in our marriage where my need to be right will, will be there. And she reminds me, your need to be right uh, is showing. And so we'll, uh, I'll try and swallow my pride and work through that. But so many times we get into these, these conflicts because I'm trying to put my needs above the needs of my wife or the needs of my family. And one of the things I've noticed is that as you prepare to teach, God always works in your heart as you're working through this teaching. And this is very much the same. But Satan will also try and attack you where you're trying to teach. And so I knew this week as I stepped into this uh, role this week to teach on marriage, I was prepared for something to happen in my marriage, prepared for conflict, prepared for frustration. Frustration. I felt like something was going to happen because that's what always happens. You know, for instance, last week I shared the story about, um, I was in the car with my daughter and uh, Paul talks in the beginning of chapter three there about, you know, the purity of our speech. And uh, I shared a story when I was driving in the car, got cut off, my five-year-old was in the back seat, and, uh, and somebody she cuts me off, and I let something fly out of my mouth that I wasn't very proud of. And out of the back seat, my daughter says, hey, what does that mean? You know, it's this accountability that's there when, when she's there. So last week, I'm heading home, getting on the highway at 95, and what happens? Some guy almost slams into the side of me, 
Now, luckily for you guys, I kept it together, so I did well this time. I was able to keep my mouth shut. I was a little frustrated internally, but I didn't. I was able to hold myself. And so God always attacks us where we're at, wherever we're teaching. And so this week, we're talking about marriage, and I was prepared for it. And on Tuesday night, I was heading home. It had been a long day at work. We had a lot of stuff going on this week, and uh, preparing for the teaching and other stuff going on. And so I'm heading home, and uh, I talked to my wife, and she's like, we've already eaten. We're upstairs, because I was heading home late that night. And... Um, She's like, go ahead and grab your food. So I get home. After a long day, I walk in the door, and there, there are toys on the ground. And so I'm like, okay, a little bit messy, but okay. So I navigate my way to the kitchen. When I get in there, there's spaghetti on the table that she made for dinner. And so I sit down to eat my spaghetti, and uh, I grab the, the bottle of Parmesan cheese. And let me ask you a question. Can you guys eat spaghetti without Parmesan cheese? No. One person? Well, okay. You're the first person all day that would say yes. All right, so no, you can't eat spaghetti without Parmesan cheese, right? And so I, the bottle's completely empty when I pick it up. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> and so this stuff starts piling up. And so I go upstairs, the kids are screaming, she's trying to get one bathed. And I'm just, I'm just inside, I'm just a little, a little frustrated, you know, a little frustrated. And so I decide to walk downstairs, I grab my keys, I hop in the car, and I head to Publix uh, to, to go grab some cheese so I can come home and enjoy my dinner. And as I'm driving to Publix, I'm, I'm reminded of this teaching where it says, husbands, love your wives unconditionally, no matter what. And how sometimes stupid things, like a, like a bottle of cheese, can, can, can get in the way of that. You know, it's like, I'm not perfect. I'm trying every day to be the best husband I can be, but there are so many times where we drop the ball, and it's my needs above the needs of my family. You see, my expectation was to come home and tell me if this is unreasonable, to a clean home, to the laundry done, to the bed made, to the kids bathed, they're in their pajamas, dinner's on the table, there's cheese with my dinner... <laughs> And so many times, that is our expectation, husbands, when we go home to our wives. And it's not reasonable. And God's saying, love your wives no matter what. I can tell you that my wife works very hard doing the laundry, cleaning the home, picking up the toys, bathing the kids. I mean, she works harder than anyone I know. But it's always the little negative things that creep in that try and take a hold of our selfishness and our pride. We say, what are you, you, know, what are you doing? You know, but that always creeps into our marriages, and Satan will grab a foothold wherever he can in our lives to drive that wedge between you. So God reminded me on the way to publish, he's like, look, love your wife unconditionally. It doesn't matter you don't have cheese. It doesn't matter that there's a mess. Go home and love your wife. Go home and love your kids. That is what your role is as the head of the household. You see, men, we were under attack. The devil will come into your life and, and, and intervene into your families, into your marriages in any way possible. In any way we allow him to get in there, he wants to tear your family apart. He wants to tear your kids away from you. He wants to tear your marriage apart. And that's why we need to get this right, guys. That's why we need to get this right. Spiritually, you are to lead your household. The trends are off the chart with men leaving the church. But guys, you're called to lead spiritually your household. Be bringing your family to church. Be leading your family devotion. Be praying for your wife. Be praying for your kids. Lead your household spiritually and lead it well. But you see, we can't do life alone, guys. It always intrigues me that when you look at this guide for growth groups, we always see that there are way more women's groups than men's groups. Why is that? Why is that? I know men have trouble opening up to each other. There's a lot of pride there when it comes to being a man. But what we need to be reminded of is that we can't do life alone. You have to have somebody in your life that will call you out, somebody that will ask you the tough questions, somebody that will pray with you and encourage you when things are heading south in your marriage. Who's going to hold you accountable to that? I want to encourage you guys. We've got some great men's groups coming up.
this spring. Find a group and get plugged in. See, a lot of us will say, well, I'm too busy. I don't need that. You know, I'd rather do this, rather do that. But Paul is saying, look, men, you are to lead your wives well. You are to lead your children well. You are to be the head of the household and represent Christ in all that we do. First and foremost, that is goal number one. That is goal number one. We have got to get that right. We can't allow the devil to get a foothold in our lives. Marriage is until death do us part, not until my feelings have changed, not until finances get in the way. It's till death do us part. I will do what I need to do to love you unconditionally. And I know that some of you guys in here have a marriage that's struggling or a marriage that's on the rocks. And I want to put um, some information here on the screen for you because, you know, the church, we're here for you and we want to support you in any way possible. My email address is up there. If you uh, have questions, if you're struggling, by all means, reach out to us. We would love, we have a group of pastors and people that would love to come alongside you and pray with you and and work with you. Uh, Norm Yeager is a counselor. A lot of you guys know Norm. He attends church here. He has an office in our offices next door uh, where he's a licensed professional counselor. There's his information. If you have a marriage that's struggling today, do not leave here today with that struggle, struggle continuing without reaching for help. You guys have got to reach out for help. You've got to seek it because Paul's saying, look, as a believer, as a follower of Christ, we've got to get this right. Husbands, um, lead your wives well. Women, submit to your husbands. You've got to do this according to Scripture. You've got to do it well. So don't leave here today without seeking the help that you need. We also have a marriage series available in the media office. If you leave here today out in the window in the breezeway, Pastor Anton on marriage a couple weeks ago. Grab one, listen to it together, and talk through it together. So Paul begins to talk about marriage. Women, submit to your husbands. Husbands, you need to love your wives unconditionally. And then he moves on into the family dynamic, the family relationship. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, he says this, Children, be obedient, underline that, to your parents, and underline all things, for this is well and pleasing to the Lord. So children, be obedient to your parents in all Things. I can tell you that this has been the Eve family verse of the week for the last like three years. Yeah, it's been on our little, little memory board. Just every time my kids don't listen, remember Colossians 3.20 where it says be obedient to your parents. It's pleasing God. You're pleasing God when you listen to me, you know, trying to like maybe get it in that way, you know. But kids, you're to be obedient to your parents because it pleases God. It's that simple. There's not much to this verse. It says obey God because it pleases him. It makes him happy. And there's a couple of quick things I wanted to point out. Number one, when it says, children, obey your parents. There's a lot of teenagers that will say, well, I'm not a child, I'm a teenager. The word children actually translates to offspring. So if you are under your parents' roof, you are under their obedience. You need to obey them under their command. You have to listen to them. I'm sorry. That order of rank in marriage, men over women, women and men, the parents are over the children. So that ranking continues in the family dynamics. So children, obey your parents. On your outline, I want you to write this. The new child is to obey their parents even when they don't want to. To obey their parents even when they don't want to. Again, the idea that Paul says is if you're a believer, you're going to a parent according to Scripture. You're going to parent in a way that represents Christ well. Therefore, everything you command of your children is scriptural and obedient to God's word. So children need to be obedient to your parents. But, but, but kids in here, don't worry. Parents turn is coming in the next verse. And one of the things I found about parenting is it's so hard. If you guys have kids, you understand what I'm talking about. Parenting is tough. Finding that balance of discipline and fun and, and trying to, to lead them and knowing that the responsibility ends with us to raise these children and to, and to do that well. And uh, you know, my, my wife and I are sitting up here. We have, we have three kids. We have Madison, who's five, Taylor, who's four, and Isaiah uh, is eight months. And uh, in fact, we have a picture uh, to put up. Um, we have number four on the way. That's number four. Right there, yeah. Thank you, thank you. So we are super excited. 
Don't know if it's a boy or girl yet, but they will be with us uh, middle of summer sometime, end of June, beginning of July. And the thing I find interesting is that we go out with three kids and people look at you like, how do you do it? And I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Look at her. You know, she's the one that, that does it all. She holds it together. Um, but, you know, as parents, it's like I look at that picture and I'm always reminded, like, you know, here we are bringing this life into the world and the responsibility falls on us to get this right to get this right, to lead them according to Scripture, to lead them in a way that honors God, to love that child no matter what, and to lead them well, to parent them well. And so, parents, we've got to get this one right. We've got to say, children, we love you. We don't want to be the reason that we push them away. And Paul says this, a very simple, short, but profound truth. In verse 21, he says this, Fathers, do not underline exasperate your children so that they will underline not lose Heart. Do not exasperate your children so they do not lose heart. In this scripture, the word father can actually be translated parents. So women, you're on the hook here as well. Other translations would say fathers do not provoke your children. So the idea is that when we provoke or exasperate our children, that we are driving them to something, that we are exciting them or stimulating them to do something wrong. So don't be the reason that they walk away, parents. The idea is that we bring this behavior on ourselves. Do not exasperate your children. You see, a lot of times we can expect perfection from our kids. We can expect them not to mess up. We can expect them to do things 100% well all the time to, to do things right. And we set these standards that aren't realistic for our kids, and it drives a wedge between our relationship. But Paul says, don't provoke them so they don't lose heart. Lose heart literally means do not break them in spirit. Do not break their spirit. And some of you guys have been there before. And it might be a parent relationship that you had. It might be something else in life where your spirit, you feel like your spirit's been broken. You're completely deflated and it hurts. And Paul's saying, parents, don't do that to your kids. Don't do that to your kids. If we continually hound them, we set them up to fail. And on your outline, I want you to write this. The new parent will discipline with compassion and grace. The new parent will discipline with compassion and grace. That doesn't mean we justify bad behavior. Discipline is a part of love. Discipline is a part of love, but we have to do that with compassion and grace. Always remember that God the Father has to deal with you, and we are to deal with our kids in the same way. There's love, compassion, mercy, and grace from God the Father to us, as there should be for us to our kids as well. And finding that balance is really hard, really hard. How far do you discipline? How far do you let them go? And finding that balance there, because the expectation is, yes, that your kids listen, that they're obedient, that they do well in school, that they become something great in life. Yes, that's our hope for our kids. But we need to find the correct balance so we're not pushing them too far. And the reason that they are pushed away, it says. One of the things that we have found, and we've talked about this a lot um, now that our children are getting older and starting to kind of feel their own a little bit, is how do you find that balance? And what I've always found is that when our kids start to push that envelope, is that we start, we, I will take one of my kids out on a date. We'll date our kids. We take them to the park. We'll take them to a restaurant. We'll just spend time with them because usually it's a cry for something else. You know, they need something from me. They want to spend time with you and they'll act out as a, as a way to get that attention. And so we take time to date our kids. We take them out. Uh, we try and speak positively into their life. You know, kids are always listening. And so when you say something to them, they're always listening and they're always reflecting that in their lives. And so we can't fail at home, parents. We've got to raise our, parents, our, our kids according to Scripture. We cannot fail at home. Again, there's a parenting series in the office, in the media office today. If you have parenting questions, if you're about to be a parent, you have questions, go grab that series, listen to it together, and talk about it, because we have to lead our families well. But again, men, it all starts with you. It all starts with you. How are you leading in your home? Are you the angry dad that's constantly yelling? Or are you the one that's leading them to a good place, that's leading them to where Christ would have them to be? 
And so Paul starts to transition now away from, the, from marriage, away from the homes, and now into the workplace. Specifically, he talks about slaves and masters. But as we fast forward into a current connotation, that would be employees to employer or to your boss. But in verse 22, it says, Paul says this, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does, who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. And so it says, look, slaves, employees, you need to serve your boss as if you are serving the Lord. Serve him in all things in a way that's pleasing to God. If, you're, if, if that master, if that boss is doing something wrong, you have to trust that God is in control and he will deal with that in the right timing. But you as an employee or you as a slave, as you're referring to here, are to serve your boss or serve your master in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. Serve him as if you were serving God himself. So on your outline, I want you to write this. The new employee will serve their boss diligently and honestly as if they were serving the Lord. Diligently and honestly as if they were serving the Lord. Whether that person demands that respect or not or should have it or not, we are to serve them as if we're serving God, trusting that God is in that. And so you see that he spends one verse talking to wives, one verse talking to husbands, one on child, one on parenting. But then he goes into the slave and master and spends about uh, four or five verses talking about this dynamic between uh, the slave and the master. And there's a reason that most people believe this. There was a guy, his name is Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave uh, to Philemon. Philemon was the master of Onesimus. And Philemon was one of the guys that started this church in Colossae. So the book of Colossians written to this church. Philemon was one of the guys that started this church and he owned slaves. And so Onesimus had ran away uh, from him and ran to Rome where Paul was. Paul was in prison there and meets Onesimus and actually says Onesimus is saved during Paul's ministry there. And so Paul starts writing this letter to the church in Colossae, answering their questions, but also writes a letter to Philemon. You'll see that in the New Testament as well. It's one chapter long. It's a letter from Paul to Philemon, the leader of this church. And in that, he says this, I appeal to you, this is Paul speaking to Philemon, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. If you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And here's the reason why that is so important. When you look at this letter that he's writing to Philemon, in the Roman Empire, it says that almost over half of all citizens were considered slaves during this time. And so to a a slave master, slaves were not people, they were property. They were not people, they were property, and they treated them as such. And so here's what Paul was asking. He's saying, look, Philemon, as a slave master, he's like, I want you to forgive Onesimus. I want you to forgive him. Something a slave master would never do to their slaves. It's like, I'm asking you to forgive you. That's a characteristic of the new man. When you put on Christ, you're going to represent him well, even to your slaves or to your employees. And then to Onesimus, he says, I want you to serve Philemon happily. I know you're a slave, but you're to serve him as you're serving God, trusting that God will put him in his place if he has to. Again, a new characteristic of a new man is that you will serve as if you are serving unto the Lord. Serve as if you are serving unto the Lord. And so Paul's trying to get us to transition to think like a new man. Again, people will say, why didn't Paul just abolish slavery at this point? See, this whole idea behind writing this letter to Philemon was hopefully to, to shake the establishment enough to say, look, slaves are equal in the eyes of God. Just as women are equal to men, slaves are equal to their master in the eyes of God. And if we can get that right, then there is no more slavery. There is no more uh, of this stuff going on. 
because as a, as a new man in Christ, there's no place for that in our society. It says that they are equal to the master. In fact, Galatians chapter 3, it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Christ Jesus. We are all equal in the eyes of God. We are all equal in the eyes of God, no matter what. And so Paul's goal was to establish this ranking, this, this, all of us are equal in the eyes of God, so that that establishment would fall, that there would be no more slavery from then on. Back then, the church didn't have the social platform it does now. So if they were to get out there and rock the boat and start saying, free your slaves, they would have been shut out, and uh, the Roman government would have, would have stepped in and shut them down. And so if you try to do that in the best way possible, it says, reflect Christ. In all that you do, love people in the way that you would love Christ. And a reflection of that would be this behavior. So Paul then begins to wrap up this section in chapter 4, verse 1. And he says this, Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. He says, no matter how important you think you are, always remember that there is someone above you, that there is God above you that's looking down upon you, looking down upon what you're doing. And again, culturally, masters were the head of their slaves. And they ruled over these people. But he's saying, look, you need to rule with justice and fairness. Justice and fairness. In a modern context on your outline, we would say a new boss will treat their employees with respect and integrity. With respect and integrity. If you have employees underneath you today, how are you leading in the workplace? Are you a representative of Christ to your employees? And they look at you, what do, you, what do they see? Do they see that respect and integrity? Or do they see a guy that's, uh, that's treating them unjustly, that's treating them unfairly? So employees, you need to serve your boss well. Boss, bosses, you need to serve your employees well. You need to lead them well in the workplace. And as we begin to wrap up this, wrap up this section, I'm brought back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. This sums all of this up. And this is what Paul says. He says, whatever you do, do in word or deed. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. See, Paul's saying, look, no matter what you do, whether you're a husband, you're a wife, you're a father, you're a mother, you're a child, you're an employee, you're an employer, whatever your role is, he's saying do it as if you're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do it in his name. When we put on our new self, that is to be reflected in every aspect of our life, in every area of our life. These characteristics of Jesus should shine through us so that people in our workplace, they see Christ. Not the angry boss that's coming and demanding things, but a representation of Christ. Not a father that's, that's kind of lording it over the wife, that's lording it over their kids, but one that's coming along and loving their family in a way that we are called to lead. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You see, if he's Lord of our lives, that submission comes, the obedience comes, the leadership comes when we allow him to consume our lives, when we allow him to lead, when we allow him to take over our lives. That's a natural byproduct of what happens in our life. And so it all begins with us. Guys, lead your house well. Lead your house well. Step up and be the guy that God's called you to be, the father, the husband, the leader in the workplace. We all have a role to play. And God is saying, come alongside Put on your new self. Reflect Jesus in all that we do. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. And, and God, I know that there are times where we are forced to look at ourselves and we are forced to look at our situations, our marriages, our families. God, and it all comes back to me and what I need to do to help make things better. But God, I thank you that you're willing to hold us to that standard, that you say, I am the standard and you're to be like me in all areas of my life. And so God, I thank you for that. I thank you for the accountability that you give us. I thank you for the ways that you lead us, God, and the ways that you call us to lead here on earth. And so, God, I pray this week that as we leave here that you will remind us what it is I need to be working on to be a better father, to be a better husband, or whatever it is I do in life, to be better at that, and most importantly, to reflect you in all that I do. 
to make decisions based upon your word, to seek wisdom according to your word. So, Father, that you may be glorified in all that I do. Jesus, thank you for being here today. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of your work and what you're doing here. I pray that you'll go with us this week. Go before us, guide us, and direct us. May you keep us safe. And we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.